Good morning. Let me turn on my mic here. I just discovered something that I didn't know when Cooper read his read our text to us because he read it from a translation that I had not checked. And you'll see why that's interesting in a little while. All right, well, this morning we're going to continue our exploration of what Scripture teaches us about the believer's reward. As we saw last week, the believer's reward is a unique opportunity. It's a special blessing that our God has given to us. It's bestowed on every believer, and it's the opportunity for us to earn a reward that each one of us will enjoy for all eternity for our faithful service to God here and now. Now, before we jump into today's texts, I'd like to review briefly what we saw last week. We first looked at Matthew chapter 6, and there we saw our Lord giving us the comforting promise that our Father in heaven is watching over us. And as he watches, he's treasuring up every little bit of godly service that we do out of love for him in the Fort Knox of heaven. Next, we turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. And there we found a further promise that as our Father treasures up these things, he will never forget them. They will be safe in his keeping. Finally, we turn to 2 Timothy And we saw the Apostle Paul facing death with confidence. His confidence came in part from the fact that he knew that his reward was safe. And Paul gave us a tip on how to build a better reward. He said that the more we live in anticipation of the moment when we will stand before Jesus Christ and have our service evaluated, the more faithful and fruitful we will be, and the more reward we will accrue. All of that was positive. But we also received a warning from our Lord in Matthew 6. Do you remember it? The warning was simple. He said, you can't double dip on rewards. When you seek your reward from men, you accrue no reward from God. That's just one of the dangers that threatens to trip us up and undermine us in our efforts to build a better personal reward. Today I want to look at two other dangers that we face. The first one is the danger of wrong priorities. Our Lord addresses this in Matthew 16. And the second one is the danger of forgetfulness. And Peter talks about that in 2 Peter chapter 1. Pray with me, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given to us. It's a great potential. Grandfather, that as we continue to study, that our minds would be changed, that our loves would be changed, and that our actions would be changed so that you would work in us to take this potential opportunity and turn it into a real achievement. 
that will bring honor to you. This we pray through your Son. Amen. All right, well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, if you will. Cooper read for us verses 21 through 27. Our focus this morning will be on verses 24 through 27, but before we jump into them, I want us to think a little bit about the events that led up to our Lord speaking these words. Now, at this time in the sequence of events in our Lord's ministry, he has been ministering publicly for two, perhaps three years. The early days of his popularity have passed. Opposition from the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish priests is growing rapidly because Jesus doesn't fit their boilerplate, their expectations for what the Messiah should be like. Now, back in chapter 12 in Matthew, the common people had been wondering whether Jesus might be the Messiah, and they asked that question. They said, could this be the son of David? But the Jewish leaders had come to their conclusion, and they were doing everything to convince the people that Jesus was not the Messiah. They wanted to remove that notion from the people's minds. But still, the question of who Jesus was hung in the air of Israel, like the proverbial elephant in the room that nobody really wants to talk about. Well, in verse 13 of Matthew 16, our Lord breaks the silence. He asks a question. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, the disciples answer. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But our Lord pushes them further. He says in verse 15, Who do you say that I am? Peter is ready with an answer. He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Lord is very, very pleased with that response. Listen to what he says. Try to imagine the scene. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, these are wonderful words of praise. Our Lord was obviously pleased with Peter's answer. This is not the time for us to discuss exactly what the keys of the kingdom of heaven are, or how Peter wielded those keys. What I want to focus on this morning is the fact that this is a great spiritual victory for Peter. And recognizing that victory makes it all the more striking what happens next. Well, our Lord continues. 
Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Peter is not happy, and he tells the Lord so. He takes him aside, and this is what he says. What he says leads to an exchange between him and our Lord that leads to our text in verses 24 to 27. Verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Now, I think it's clear that Peter's rebuke was motivated by a love for his master. But behind Peter's words, there's a wrong attitude about the value of mortal life. Behind Peter's words, there's an error in priorities. And our Lord took advantage of this teachable moment to address that attitude. His words in verses 24 to 27 are addressed to all of the disciples, not just to Peter. And what he says to them is equally applicable to us. Listen now as I read verses 24 to 27 to you again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, And then he will reward each one according to his works. Let's take a closer look at these words. Well, the first part of our Lord's response here in verse 24 is not difficult to understand. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, follow my example. Surrender yourself to serve the Father in whatever way he calls you to do. My Father wants me to serve him by going to the cross. He wants you to serve him too, although the way will probably be different. But verses 25 and 26 are not so clear. Listen to these verses again. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, when Jesus speaks of losing one's soul and saving it in verse 26, 
it sounds like he's talking about the question of eternal salvation, doesn't it? That's what it sounds like. I don't think that our Lord is talking about eternal salvation here. I believe that this entire discussion, this whole passage, is directed to his disciples who are believers and that it's directed to us as believers. I think that what's going on in this passage is that our Lord is calling those of us who have already come to faith in Christ to gain a proper perspective on the value of our mortal lives. He wants us to see this time between now and when our physical lives end as an opportunity for service and a chance to build a better reward. Let's look at the evidence and see if I can convince you of this. All right, well, the first thing is the Greek word psuche. Now, the word psuche is the word from which we get psychology. It means the study of the self or the study of the mind. That's what psychology means. Now, the, the Greek word psuche is an interesting word. It can refer to mortal life, this thing that we all have, that we're experiencing now, or it can refer to the immaterial soul, that part of you that survives death. It, appear, it appears four times in these two verses that we've looked at, verses 25 and 26. Now, the reason I spoke to Cooper after he read was that he read from the Net Bible, and interestingly, the Net Bible translates this different from virtually every other translation that you have in your hands. Take a look at your Bible. In verse 25, if your Bible is like mine, it says, whoever desires to save his life, that's the word psuche, will lose it, and whoever loses his life, that's the word psuche again, for my sake will find it. And then in verse 26, the word appears again twice, but it's translated as soul. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? That's the word psuche again. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's the word psuche. Now, this is a very strange way to translate, isn't it? To translate the same Greek word in one sentence within one very tight context, one way in verse 25 and a different way in verse 26. Interestingly, the Net Bible went through consistently and says life, 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 life. All right? Now, secondly, the second piece of, of evidence is the audience. To whom is the Lord speaking? He's speaking to his disciples. And except for Judas, they're all believers. When he says to them, take up your cross and follow me, he's assuming that they already belong to God. It would make no sense for Jesus to say, take up your cross and follow me, serve the Father as I say the Father, and then say, oh, and by the way, you need to get saved. It doesn't fit. The evidence is that he's speaking to believers. Now, the third piece of evidence is the logic of the passage. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 is basically a command, isn't it? Verse 24 is basically Jesus saying, Take up your cross and follow me. Serve the Father as faithfully as I am serving the Father. 
And then if you look at all the verses that follow, verse 24, verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 25, verse 26, and 27, they all begin with one word, don't they? Four, four, four. Each one is tightly linked to the verse before it. Each time you see that four, it's telling you that the sentence that begins with four is giving reasons for what was said earlier. Now, if that's true, the idea that there's a sudden shift in topic from a call to believers to serve God faithfully to a call to unbelievers to get saved doesn't make sense. I think the logic of the passage tells us that this is all spoken to the same kind of an audience, believers. The fourth piece of evidence is how the passage begins and ends. In verse 24, our Lord called his disciples to serve the Father faithfully. In verse 27, he finishes with a, prob- with, with a promise that he will reward his followers for their faithful service. Again, it all hangs together. Now, do you see in verse 27, I don't know how your Bible translate the, translates this verb, but in mine... I see the verb reward, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. That's that verb we saw last week, the verb apodidomi. It has the idea of recompense for service, being paid back for work done. Now, if I put all this evidence together, I think it's clear that our Lord is speaking of a single topic all through this passage. He's speaking to believers. The topic is serving God wholeheartedly because Christ will one day reward us for our service. So in other words, I believe verses 24 to 27 are all speaking about the believer's reward. Now let me try to retranslate the passage, and this is the way it is in the Net Bible, and see if it doesn't make more sense. Okay, verses 25 and 26. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or wastes his own life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Now let me try to paraphrase this for you. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. You have only one life to live. The question of where you're going to spend eternity is already settled if you've put your trust in Christ. That is secure. That is certain. But how you spend the days of your mortal life, the time you have now until the day that your body stops functioning, that choice is up to you. And the choices that you make now will determine your reward in eternity. You can invest your life wisely by losing it in God's service. Or you can invest it foolishly by saving it for yourself, expending it on your own desires and pleasures. And you see that our Lord is expressing a great spiritual irony here? 
The believer who loses his or her life for God the Father in his service, here and now, will earn a great reward, and he or she will enjoy that reward for all of eternity. But the believer who saves his or her life now, meaning devotes it to satisfying him or herself, will in fact be wasting it because he lives it for himself or she lives it for herself and not for the Father. The believer who makes that second choice will earn very little reward. Now look at verse 27. There our Lord is reminding us that one day in the future each of us will stand before what we will see next week is called the Bema Seat of Christ. That will be the time when he will evaluate our service and bestow our rewards. On that day, he will review how each one of us spent our lives. I want you to imagine that day right now. Try to picture it in your head. It could be a day of rejoicing or it could be a day of regrets. Now, if you took seriously our Lord's call to take up your cross and follow me, our Lord will be pleased at how you invested your life. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your reward is according to your works, and it is a large reward. Well done indeed. That will be a day of jubilation and rejoicing. But suppose you didn't pay much attention to our Lord's warning here. Our Lord will pull out his book, look over the record of your works. Sadness and disappointment will fill his eyes. My child, because you put your trust in me, your place in my eternal kingdom is secure but you didn't take my call to service seriously. Instead, you pursued the things of this world. Those things have no lasting value. They're all behind you now, lost forever. I'm sorry, but your works are small. Your reward, therefore, is small too. I had hoped for better from you. That will be a day of deep regret. Verse 3 of Kathy's song. Lord, when you see my eyes astraying, remind me of your word and pull them back in line. For if I spend my efforts getting worldly riches... I'm just wasting all my time. Very well said. If the Bema Seat judgment, if that day when you stand before the Lord finds you with regrets, what will you say in response? Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't realize what was at stake. Give me a second chance. Give me another life to live. Do you think he'll give you a second chance? What could you offer him to buy a second shot at life? 
That's the warning that our Lord is speaking in verse 26. For what does a man gain if he gains the whole world but loses his life, wastes his life? This isn't about death. This is about wasting the time you've got. Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? The answer is simple. There's nothing that you can give. There's nothing that I can give. There will be no second chance. The time is ticking away. It's ours to invest. It's a shame to waste it. You see, Peter's mistake, the mistake that led him to rebuke our Lord, was the mistake of wrong priorities. Peter considered mortal life too valuable to be surrendered in service to the Father. But our Lord Jesus says, think again, Peter. Mortal life is precious. But life is an opportunity to be invested wisely, not hoarded. I'm ready to devote my mortal life to my Father's service according to his plan. And you should give your life to him in the same way, in whatever way he calls to you. Well, that's the danger of wrong priorities. Now I want to look at the danger of forgetfulness. Turn with me to 1 Peter. I'm sorry, to 2 Peter, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 2 through 7 to you, and then we'll move on to the text that's, the, that's our focus. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 2 to 7. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things necessary for life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me paraphrase this exhortation for you very briefly. God saved you by grace. He has supplied you with everything that you need to build a godly life. Now Peter doesn't list those things, but I'm sure they include access to the Father through the high priestly ministry of Christ, the privilege of prayer, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Word, the fellowship of the saints, spiritual gifts. I'm sure there are things that I haven't thought of. But he has supplied to us everything that we need. 
And Peter is saying, use what God has given you to build a life that will please and honor him. And if you do, you will never have a reason to fear that your days on earth have been wasted. Now, Peter will discuss in verses 8 to 11 what is at stake in the question of whether we're going to follow this exhortation. It's there that I want to focus our attention. There's something to be gained by obeying the call to build a godly life, and there's something to be lost by ignoring it. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. For if these things are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, for in this way an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, I want to highlight three things that Peter mentions here. First one is the danger of forgetfulness. That's my key point. The second one is the key to assurance. And the third one is this idea of an abundant entrance into Christ's kingdom. Let's take a quick look at each one of these. Well, first, the danger of forgetfulness. When Peter wrote this book, he was an old man. He had been leading the church for a long time. He wasn't the only leader of the church, but he was an elder in the churches. He was an influential man. He was a godly man. And Peter was a wise motivator. Peter understood that we're more likely to follow his advice if we understand what there is to lose and what there is to gain. So he gives us a warning. He says, if you aren't making an effort, if you aren't trying to be diligent to build these qualities into your life, you are like the old cartoon character, Mr. Magoo. Do you remember him? I'm sh- I don't know if all the young, young people here remember him, but we remember Mr. Magoo, don't we? Mr. Magoo was so short-sighted that he may as well have been blind. And that's what Peter says. If you don't follow this advice, advice, you are so short-sighted, you have such a short-term view on the future that you may as well be blind. You have forgotten what Christ did for you in the past when he paid the debt of your sins. You have also forgotten what waits for you in the future. Eternity in his presence in a new heavens and new earth. In other words, you have forgotten that your life now is a God-given opportunity to build your reward and to glorify God and that that opportunity will only last for a short time. Now, secondly, there is the key to assurance. Notice what Peter says in verse 10. This verse may disturb you a little bit. He says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, 
For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, this is a tricky statement, and it's very important that we don't misunderstand it. Calling and election are sovereign acts of God, aren't they? We don't participate in calling and election. We respond to them. Why then does Peter say, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure? How can we make something sure that God did way back past in time and that we don't participate in? Well, it's because Peter is talking about assurance. He's talking about assurance. Assurance is the feeling of confidence when you can look at yourself and you can say, I can see the work of God in me. I can see that my life is different than it would have been if God hadn't called me and saved me and begun to transform me. Now, assurance is a wonderful thing to have. It's also a terrible thing to lose. Now, if you lose your assurance, you don't lose your salvation, but you lose that confidence. Unconfessed, ongoing sin in your life eats away at assurance. You know that sick feeling when you find yourself sinning and you discover that you weren't even caring about it? Have you ever asked yourself, am I really saved? I have. Because when I catch myself in sin, I ask the question, has God really changed me? Now the way to get assurance back is to confess sin, to ask the Father to cleanse you, and say, now Father, enable me by your Spirit to be obedient, to walk with you. And assurance returns. Now Peter is saying, that if you want to experience the joy of assurance, if you want to live that way, you need to be, and catch this word, this is his word, diligent. You need to be diligent. You need to make an effort to build a life that is pleasing to God. This isn't work salvation. This is divinely empowered personal cooperation with God in the process of your ongoing sanctification. That's the key to assurance. Now thirdly, we come to this issue of the abundant entrance into Christ's everlasting kingdom. What does that mean? Well, we know that every one of us will enter into his everlasting kingdom, don't we? That's a promise of the gospel. Eternal life in his presence eternal life in the new heavens and new earth, in a resurrected body, in a sinless state, enjoying the blessings of a new universe in which there is no sin, no sorrow, no death. That's promised to all of us. Peter is speaking of the life that awaits us after resurrection. I believe it will begin in the millennial kingdom and then it will continue on into all eternity. Now, Every one of us will live in Christ's eternal kingdom, but not every believer will have an equally abundant entrance into that kingdom. Let me illustrate this for you. 
I want you to imagine yourself, for some of you this means going up in age, for most of us it means going down. I want to, um, you to imagine yourself as a 15 or 16 year old teenager. Okay? You receive an invitation from a rich, rich uncle you didn't even know you had, inviting you and your brother to go stay with him at his estate in Tahiti for the summer. Included with that invitation is a card that says, report to the airport at such and such a time. You go to the airport, there's a private jet waiting for you, you climb aboard, you fly to Tahiti in great luxury. You land at the airport. Up drives a limousine, out steps your rich uncle. The chauffeur puts your bags in the trunk. Your uncle says, hop in the car. Home, James. And you drive off to this uncle's estate. There's a long driveway leading up to it. And there's this enormous, gorgeous mansion. All around you are well-tended green lawns, flower beds, fruit trees. There are men in nice uniforms taking care of all of this. And you look off in the distance, you can see a huge swimming pool, tennis courts, and a riding stable. And your uncle says, welcome. This is your home for the summer. It's all for you. Enjoy! And you look at your brother, and the two of you are grinning from ear to ear. And as he's about to walk off, your uncle stops, and he says for a minute, oh, wait a minute, there's just one more thing. And he reaches into each of his pockets, and he pulls out an envelope, and he hands one to your brother, and he pulls out another one, and he hands one to you. And he says, enjoy! And he excuses himself. And you and your brother are standing there, and you say, let's see what's in the envelopes. You first. So your brother tears open his envelope. He reaches inside, he pulls out, a gold American Express card with his name on it and a set of rather exotic-looking keys which it turns out fit the red Ferrari that's parked right there. And your brother says, this is fantastic, let's see what's in your envelope. And so you tear open your envelope and you reach in and you pull out a $50 gift certificate to Starbucks and then you pull out a rather rusty, well-used key, which turns out to unlike, unlock the chain on the bicycle that's parked right next to the Ferrari. You and your brother stare at each other, and neither one of you really knows what to say. But you just got a bucket of cold water thrown in your face. Now think about what just happened. Both of you were invited for the summer. Both of you were transported. Both of you were welcomed into the estate. Both of you were told, enjoy everything that's here. But let me ask you something. Which one of you received a more abundant entrance? You know the answer, don't you? It's obvious. Something similar awaits us on the day 
when we will receive our rewards from Christ. They won't all be the same. I can't tell you what's going to be in your envelope. I can't tell you what's going to be in mine. But I can tell you this. The more faithfully, the more fruitfully you serve your Father in heaven now, the more wonderful the contents of that envelope will be. And the less you take seriously the call to service, the less impressive their contents will be. I want to finish with three quick observations. Observation number one, time is precious. Have you ever stopped to compare time with eternity? From one perspective, time compared to eternity is insignificant. How long will each of us live? 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years? Maybe. Compared to eternity, that is a drop in the ocean. In that sense, time, meaning the time that we are going through now, is insignificant. But in another sense, time, and again, I'm talking about the time we have between now and the day that our hearts stopped ticking and they put us in the grave. That time is extraordinarily significant. It's incredibly precious. It's precious because this is the time to earn our reward, and there will be no other time. Now is the time to earn an abundant entrance into Christ's kingdom. That's what Paul was thinking of when he said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. He was thinking of our reward. Time is precious because time here and now is an opportunity that we will never have again. Observation number two. Time is easy to waste. Time is easy to waste because of two dangers that we have seen today. First, time is easy to waste because we value time too highly. Now, I didn't make a mistake when I said that. I know it sounds silly. Time is easy to waste because we value time too highly. Remember Peter? Peter's error in valuing mortal life too highly flipped him from one moment being the spokesman for God the Father. Remember Jesus said, our Father in heaven revealed that to you. Two, in the next moment, being the spokesman for Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Time is precious. Mortal life is precious. But their primary value is as an opportunity to serve God in preparation for eternity. And that's why it's easy to waste time because we value mortal life too highly. Think about the things that we try to do to extend mortal life. Now, I'm not talking about medicine 
I'm talking about the things that we try to do to keep ourselves looking young. I'm talking about the ways that we try to hide from ourselves the fact that death is coming. You know, people have said that our culture is not a death-defying culture. Christian culture is a death-defying culture because we know that death is a defeated enemy. Our culture is a death-denying culture. And we do all kinds of things to deny the fact that death is coming, to entertain and distract and delude ourselves. And it's because we value mortal life so highly that we do those things, and in the process of doing those things, we waste life and don't use it for what it was made for, an opportunity for us to serve Christ. We waste time because we value mortal life too highly. Now, secondly, time is easy to waste because we are forgetful. It's easy to forget what Christ has done for us, isn't it? It's easy to forget what he suffered for us. One of the keys to staying on track in spending your life wisely, in investing it in glorifying God, in being a blessing to other people, in building your reward. One of the ways to stay on track is to continually remind yourself what the Son has done for us, what the Father paid in sending his Son to the cross. That's why we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday, isn't it? And that's good. But we need to remind ourselves more. The more we keep in mind what Christ has done for us, the more we will be diligent to build godly lives that will honor him and build our reward. Now, my last observation is this. Your heavenly Father wants you to build up an abundant entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom. He wants you to build a serious massive, impressive reward. He wants you to drive a Ferrari in eternity, not a bicycle. He wants you to to play a Stradivarius in eternity, not a harmonica. He wants you to be a mayor in one of his cities, not a street sweeper. Having said all that, I'd rather be a street sweeper in Christ's eternal kingdom than the king in hell. Don't disappoint your father. Give him reason to stuff that envelope so full it's ready to burst. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful your grace is. How abundant, how limitless, how undeserved, how incredibly generous your grace is. Thank you that because of what your son has done, that each one of us who puts his trust in your son's finished work, is guaranteed eternal life, is guaranteed resurrection, is guaranteed an entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom. We rest on that, we rejoice in it, we celebrate it, 
and we are secure in it. Thank you too, Father, that you have chosen in your wisdom to give us a motivation, a motivation to live godly lives, to build character, to seek to be a blessing, to be diligent, to honor you. And you've done it by promising us that you don't forget our efforts and that you store up each one and that you reward every last bit. Father, protect us from the danger of wrong priorities. Protect us from the danger of forgetfulness. Grant that we may rejoice in each day the moment we wake up as an opportunity to serve you and then when we put our heads on the pillows at night we'll be able to look back and say, yep, there's a little more in the bank and my father is watching over it. This we pray in your son's name. Amen.